The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. Part of the reason we do these podcasts is to delve into the minds of the people who have greatly shaped our collective community and identity. Dick Colt began his radio career in Detroit, moving to Connecticut in 1970 to join the management team of WPLR-FM New Haven, which is celebrating its 50th year of broadcasting. As most of us know, WPLR has been central in the Connecticut community and music scene. In 1981, Dick joined Connecticut Radio Network as a partner and executive vice president where he has created and directed many of the company's award-winning broadcast marketing campaigns. Today, Dick hosts the Distraction Podcast, a podcast on coping and connecting in our crazy busy world. Experts discuss mental health, focus, tech overload, and more. Here's an archival clip of Dick teeing up a PLR interview with John Lennon, followed by our conversation. Hello, Dick. Hello, John. How are you? Fine, how are you? Okay. Had a little trouble getting through. I gather you're rather busy and all. But, oh, is that what it was? Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, you got my letter of yesterday, I imagine, about the Radiothon in New Haven and so forth. Uh, let me see. Uh, WPLR, right? Right. Yeah, I've got the letter in front of me. Uh-huh. Do you think there's any possibility that you and Yoko could join us up here? It's going to be a tremendously large event. Uh, when is it? I haven't, I haven't read it yet. It's, uh, it'd be on Thursday, June the 15th. Oh, I really can't say, you know. I'll have to uh, discuss it. I haven't even thought about it. I haven't read the letter. Right. They just put me through, you know. The, the girl did. Right. Uh, oh, I did. Jerry Lewis, fancy. It looks pretty good, you know. I don't know, you know. It just really depends what we're doing, you know. We're having a lot of problem with immigration. I don't know what we can do, actually. Okay, well, if it's at all possible that you and Yoko could join us for the radiothon, it would be absolutely wonderful. And uh, we would look forward to it very much. Okay, please. Right, right. We're raising funds for muscular dystrophy. Uh We raised over $18,000 last year, and uh, we're looking forward to raising as much as possibly 40 or 50,000 this year. Oh well, look. Wherever we are, we're trying to get in touch somehow. Anyway. Oh, that would be fabulous. That'd be fabulous. I'm I'm going to tell Yoko about it, or I'll forget, and then you blame. I'll get in trouble. So. (laughs) That'd be great. You know, we're just a little piece here from New York City. So if there's any chance you could make it up, we'd appreciate. Listen, John, I'm going to turn you over to Jay Crawford, our program director. He'd like to talk to you, okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, hold on. Should we launch into it? I'm ready whenever you are. All right, so, you know, what is your first musical memory, or when did you discover radio? Well, I discovered radio in Detroit. That's where I grew up. And uh, 
I think I think my my first musical memory was probably in the early to mid fifties. I mean, I remember when Elvis Presley debuted on Ed Sullivan, and they wouldn't show they wouldn't show him below the waist and all that stuff. And uh, one of my favorite early artists was Jackie Wilson, and uh, I remember going to see James Brown in his you know one of his earliest tours, uh, and I uh, was there uh, with the uh, with the uh, emergence of Motown. My brother went to high school uh, with um, Diana Ross. Uh, but, you know, uh, my, my first, uh, the first song that I remember learning the words to, and I could probably sing it today, was Bruce Chanel and Hey Baby. I love that song. And that's an old, you know, that's an oldie, but it's still, it's still around and it's still relevant. And uh, then I was on the air in Detroit. I got a, I got, uh, did some disc jockey work in Ann Arbor, in Ypsilanti, in Detroit, in Lansing. But I was always maybe double A, triple A minors. I knew I was never going to break break into the top. But I got a chance to know a lot of the artists. But what was your first like? You know, did you go into a, a makeshift studio? What What was the first point where you said this is what I want to do? Was it hearing a certain DJ on the air? Was it? Um, well, I listened to a lot of radio, uh, and back then, you know, radio was essentially what. You know, it was the dominant medium. It was as dominant, if not more dominant, than TV back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know. I think the, the thing that gave me the motivation to go into radio, believe it or not, I became a ham radio operator first when I was a kid. And I got very comfortable behind the microphone. And I would talk to guys all over the world. We would do, uh, um, I remember we would do what we call phone patches with the wives of soldiers who were overseas. Because back then you just didn't, you know, pull out a cell phone and call somebody from Timbuktu. So I was very comfortable behind the microphone, and um, I got to know a couple of guys when I was in college that uh, were working at radio stations, and they said, uh, you know, they're looking for people. And uh, I got my first job at a religious country and western radio station, a 100-watt daytime religious country station. I signed it on on Sunday morning, ran it the whole day, signed it off, and I was paid $5. What was who was funding that in Detroit? It was it was a small ownership, and uh, they needed somebody. I had a federal license. I had gotten my amateur radio license, then I got my commercial license, and they said, "Oh, you got a commercial license, so you can read the meters, and you can run the board, and you know how to run the board. The preachers come in, you can produce them, you can play the PSA programs." And I was doing all of this while listening to the Beatles uh, in the studio. They never knew. <laughs> that was, you know, and uh, that was that was my first job. And then I went to uh, a couple of other small stations where they said, okay, you can play music on the air if you want to. And my first show was the Saturday A Go-Go show. So that would tell you it was about mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, Detroit music or what? Yeah, well, it was uh, played a lot of uh, Detroit music, a lot of early Aretha, and a lot of Motown, and um, uh, just, uh, you know, whatever was hot. It was top 40, but what they did is they gave me a very tight playlist, and this is what you have to play. 
which is when I think I got my first motivation to find a way to someday play what I want instead of what I was told. And that made a big difference. Oh, of course. I mean, it's interesting to me that your first stint is like in a, in a place that, you know, I'm assuming you didn't know a whole lot about country Western radio, you know? <laughs> no, but I, I, I know that after playing a lot of it, I got to appreciate a lot of the artists uh, and you know, like Webb Pierce. I know you, you know, okay. And, and uh, uh, the country playboys and uh, you know, it was, it was not so much a part of Detroit, the Detroit music scene, but it was still some, and, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, during the war, uh, Detroit was called the arsenal of democracy because they transformed all of the auto industry, all of the auto plants into munitions plants. And they brought people in from all over the country. And so you had a real confluence of uh, African Americans, uh, blacks, uh, 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 people from the South, uh, people from the West, because there were jobs. And they stayed. And so there was more diversity in Detroit music than people think. Mm. It wasn't just all soul. Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in fact, some of the best rock and roll That's around right. came out of Detroit. Yeah. Um, for real, yes. A lot of that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. So what, what, when, when do you get into your first Detroit job where you set, you're, you're kind of you know, marrying your, your on-air personality with music that you you like and that you're playing? Or well, does that ever happen? Not, not so <laughs> much in Detroit. Not yeah. so much in Detroit. I mean, I, you know, Saturday at Go-Go, there was, you know, disco was just starting to make a, a creative presence and it was just a cute name. But, um, you know, I was playing mostly top 40. And... Um, I enjoyed it because I wasn't that old. You know, I was, I was 20, 22, 23, and I was playing music that I was listening to. I mean, even during the, the um, uh, you know, the times of um, Woodstock, uh, there, there was such a variety of music. I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, Sly and the Family Stone and Joe Cocker on the same bill or something like that, uh, you realize that there's a, a tremendous amount of um, uh, of, of uh, difference that that attracts uh, all kinds of emotions in you when you listen to music. To me, music is emotional. It's not just entertainment. You want if if it, a good song makes you feel good or makes you feel something, and what, that's important. What song is that for you that you can think of? Oh, let's see. <laughs> One song that made me feel good, and I used it all the time in the 70s and eventually got to introduce this group from the stage was the Tower of Power and Down to the Nightclub. It just had such a great mix of, of um, backbeat, horns, um, a nonstop dance-feel rhythm, and then you had the doctor. You had the doctor on the sax. I mean, how, you can't you can't beat that, and they're still doing it today, you know. So that was yeah, that was something that I really uh, that was a group I really enjoyed, and uh, I also. But then, I got into Foghat. Now that's kind of different from Tower of Power. That's your Detroit rock and roll. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Motor City kind of stuff. I don't know if Foghat's not from Detroit, though. No, like they're that. British. Yeah. And I brought them into Trodnasso. We recorded them for PLR. But from Detroit, oh, you had uh, what, Grand Funk. Yep. MC5, Amboy Dukes. Oh, Stooges. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Alice mean, Cooper. Alice kinda. Cooper. Yeah. Alice Cooper's from Detroit. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, and, and then it evolved into punk in Detroit. Most people don't know that, but a lot of early punk came from Detroit. But uh, when I came to Connecticut, um, my first job was in New Haven at WAVZ, Lucky 13. And um, the what, first, what kind of station was that? Yeah. The Top 40. Yep. It was 1970. Mm-hmm. It's Top 40. And I, I knew all of the great disc jockeys there uh, who had been on there for a long time. And I came there in sales. And um, I just wanted to be somewhere else other than Detroit. We had had the riots, and I'd lived my whole life in Detroit, and I wanted to change, and I was married, and I had uh, kids, but they were young enough that I could move. So I came to WAVZ, and I got uh, involved in sales, and it was easy because I believed in the radio station. I believed in what the radio station could do. And at the same time, it gave me an opportunity to get to know the disc jockeys, and uh, which I now call, I never call them disc jockeys, they're radio personalities. Because if you're gonna be successful in radio, you need a personality. And uh, we would talk music, and we would talk about what was going on in town, and then every so often an artist would show up, like the Carpenters would show up because they were from New Haven, the New Haven area, and whoever was coming through. And um, it just became more a part of my being because I was more immersed in how a radio station operated by then. I was, I would ask, you know, why'd you play this one back to back? How, what, what, what kind of segue did you decide with this? Uh, are, you, are you playing uh, from a phone-in uh, requests or are you playing a tight playlist? And uh, then I got to learn. I could listen to a station. I could tell if it was a, play, a tight playlist because I could tell by the repeat time between songs. You know, and uh, it became then more of an art and less of a science. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, it was for me. <laughs> yeah. Could you talk about Bob Herpy? Bob Herpy is one of my best friends, but I have to tell you that if it weren't for Bob, uh, I would never have been able to do a lot of the things that I did in radio. He was the general manager of WNHC-FM and uh, the gentleman who put together the group that bought the station. And he had a vision for something new and uh, exciting for New Haven. Uh, I met him when I first came to New Haven. And uh, I was actually working for WAVZ, the competition at the time. And uh, after I left WAVZ and WKCI, WKCI being the shortest job I ever had, 35 minutes, um, I talked to Bob about the idea of joining him uh, when he was going to launch his uh, FM station, and he thought it was a great idea. The difference in the relationship and what is so important to me is that we had a trust that developed where we shared a vision for what WPLR could be even before we called it WPLR 
And we understood that the, the time was right for a change in the marketplace for something new and exciting that would appeal to young adults as well as people that might even be a little bit older. But the difference in our relationship was so important to me and why I want to really say this is there was a trust. We would discuss ideas and then we would decide to do things. He would let me do what I wanted to do because he trusted me. I trusted his judgment, he trusted mine. You can't find that in business. You just can't find that. And it is part of the chemistry that launched a radio station that just was the right and most exciting thing to come along at the right time. That We hired people that we trusted. We built these relationships on trust. We listened to what they liked, what they had to say, what their ideas were. We discussed those ideas, and if they were within reason, not so much within reason, but if they were consistent with where we wanted to take it, we used them. And that way, people were motivated to think out of the box and think about what WPLR can be instead of what it is. And that, to me, made all the difference. And I, as far as I'm concerned, if it weren't for Bob Herpy, would never have happened. And he's, uh, he's somebody that I owe my radio life to. I met Bob when I first came to New Haven, and I met one of my oldest friends here in Connecticut, Dick Ferguson, who also lives in, in Westport. Oh. And uh, he, uh, Dick was selling for WNAC AM, uh, which was uh, f- um, uh, Boss Radio. You had, uh, you had Lucky 13, and of course, you know, back then, disc jockeys were what we called pukers. You know what a puker is? No, I don't. That's a guy that talks like this. Because when you're doing something and then you want to say something, you might just feel like you're going to puke. And that was the kind of, you know, it's like we always used to say, how you doing? Well, blue skies and green lights, baby. Everything always in the top 40. You know, that kind of stuff. So we were, they were called pukers. Back what then. was your personality like? Uh, I, was, uh, I was fairly straightforward but relaxed. Like you are now. Kind yeah. Of. yeah. This right. is what it was like. Yeah. And, and, and that's because I wasn't talking at people listening. I wanted to f- want them to feel like I was talking with them, even though I didn't see them and I couldn't hear them. I felt that if I could project kind of an interest in what they might be thinking, they would feel they were getting more out of listening to what I had to say than if I was just noise in the background. And there is a big difference. Huge difference. I think so. So Bob Herpy was the, um, he was the general manager of WNHC-FM. And I had uh, just been fired from the world's shortest job ever had. I had worked for 35 minutes at WKCI. Um, That's a story in itself. It was all politics. And I never felt any ill will uh, because I bounced right into what was going to become WPL. I was like fate. So I met him and uh, Dick Ferguson, and we talked a lot. He said, you know, we're going to put a group together to buy uh, the FM station because they weren't playing anything. It was mostly um, what we called elevator music, shulky elevator music. And we'd, uh, they'd play it for 12 hours and then rerun it for 12 hours. So if you gave a time check, you could never say AM or PM because people would then know. So uh, so uh, he put together a group 
to buy the radio station, a group of accountants. And uh, uh, I, he said, you know, if you're ever interested, give me a call. Well, who the hell knew I was going to be interested 35 minutes after I became sales manager of WKCI in New Haven? So I picked up the phone and he said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to work with you, but I can't hire you for three months because we won't close on the station. So I waited, lived off my savings, and then started with the station uh, essentially about uh, three weeks before we launched it as WPLR. But Bob owned the station with the accountants. And while he was the, he was the general manager, when we first started to work together, he gave me an incredible amount of leeway. He gave, we, talked, we talked in vision about what we thought the station could be, what the market needed, who, who were the people that we felt would be most responsive to what we could do if it was creative. And he said, make it happen. And he let me do it. You had no title, really, right? Like well, I no came formal in, title. Yeah, I came yeah. in, I think, initially as sales manager, but I became station manager, then assistant general manager, then general manager, all in like about a two-year period, something like that. And what was the original vision that you guys talked about that you just sort of started to outline? Well, we the, the first thing we did is we stopped doing a wall-to-wall elevator music and uh, we had personalities at the station, Ken DeVoe, Bob Neri, uh, who worked for many years uh, afterwards at WPLR, uh, a gentleman named uh, Jay Brooks, that was his on-air name. And uh, they went into a top 40 format, more of a popular music format. And they started that uh, oh, a little bit before the station was changed, changed hands. And then... Uh, they had to move out of the building uh, that WNHC was in, and uh, we worked from the actual tower site where the transmitter was for a few weeks and moved into um, 1294 Chapel Street in New Haven and decided that even though the station was running popular music, that we were going to start moving more into a, into a rock, a harder rock direction. Uh, because we saw the development of WHCN in Hartford, WBCN in Boston, WNEW in New York, and we listened to them. And we saw what they were doing, we were listening to what they were doing, and we realized with the signal that we had, we could cover all the way to Hartford, even to the Mass Line, covered half of Long Island, most of Fairfield County, and yes, we would have competition, but we would just do it better. That was it. We we're going to do it better. And so we signed on on April 29th, 1971, as WPLR, which was a contraction of the word popular. People were trying to figure out, well, gee, what does that mean? It's like, you know, when WPLJ signed on in New York, it was um, peace, love, and joy. Uh, the, the people were trying to figure out what WPLJ meant. And um, so we slowly designed a format. It wasn't like you woke up on Tuesday and all of a sudden you were doing something completely different. And we worked our way into it by um, listening and also going out into the market and getting an idea of what people were listening to because WYBC at, at Yale was a, a, a major factor too and WPKN, some of these other stations. 
So what we wanted to do was create a commercial station that was going to become a part of the life of a, a high a high concentration of radio listeners that listen for long periods of time because they're hearing the music they want, but they're also connecting to the air personality who's delivering the music. And that takes some thought. Well, in 1971, I mean, there's a lot to come. Uh, it's, it is certainly visionary because, you know, I, I, as far as I know, yeah, Jimmy Coplick's not on the scene yet. Toads isn't invented yet. So, nope. I mean, what was the culture of New Haven in 1971 that you really felt like this would stick? Well, I mean, it was a, it was transition. You know, remember we had the uh, we had the uh, demonstrations on uh, on the green, uh, a lot of uh, anti-Vietnam sentiment. Um, uh, people were starting to gravitate toward rock and roll. And when I say rock and roll, I mean, you know, uh, something heavier. They were getting into the British sound. Uh, we had the New Haven Pops concerts going on at the time at the Yale Bowl. Uh, some, of the, some of the greatest acts were coming into New Haven to play. I remember what was funny. I think we had the Who open for Grand Funk. And I'm thinking, oh, there, that's an interesting. Uh, but, that was, yeah. well, but, that, but that was then, you know. But we had we figured okay we have Yale, we have uh, UNH. We there were a lot of college kids out there, a lot of young. There was a lot of young energy out there that was, you know, they were looking to hear good local bands and they were looking to hear new music that they could really connect with and of course hear the songs that that everybody else was playing. So we thought that if we could play. If we could give them what they wanted to hear, but that they could get elsewhere, that's part of it, not all of it. Then, if we could give them what they don't know is out there that we think they would like, or in addition to that, if we could take the music and blend it in ways that was different, uh, we would, the way we would segue songs, was different we would uh we might segue a song just based on a lyric and wind up playing something uh like um by the uh, ohio players and follow it by the rolling stones if for some reason there was a a connection to be made that a person actually thought about and said hey that was cool i never thought i'd hear those two songs back to back or you know well Wait, the segue was in C minor 14? Wow, that was cool. You know, so we, we took a little extra time to think about how we could be different, but not so esoteric that people didn't get what they wanted. It was how we gave it to them that I think mattered. Do you think that you sort of planted the seed that, you know, eventually the kind of rock and roll culture in New Haven in the 70s, it it blossomed and it, it kind of erupted and it seems to me like this is the first one of the first starts of it. Well, I think I think it's safe to say we were in the right place at the right time. I think uh, I, I take nothing away from the WHCNs and BCNs of the world who were really divining it even before us. Um, I I say with great pride 
that in a very competitive atmosphere, I had very good, warm relationships with my competitors. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, who am I going to kneecap today? It was what am I going to learn and how do we as a group kind of really deliver to a, an element of society that's growing, becoming more important, becoming more outspoken, becoming more economically uh, significant, uh, but more importantly that uh, we have a product we want them to want. And you just don't wake up one morning and do it. It takes time to evolve it. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the personalities, um, it was Bob who came up with the kind of concept of Stone Man or how does Stone Man come into existence? What was he like? <laughs> do an impression, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, we uh, Stone Man, as a gentleman, uh, he should rest in peace. His name is Joe DeMeo. And I worked with him at WABZ we were selling. He couldn't sell his way out of a paper bag, but it didn't matter. He had a very he had a very nice personality, and and uh, another gentleman who worked there who was doing overnights. His name was Bob Dark. His real name is Al Santos, and so I got to know them both at ABZ. And um, when we were starting to develop something at PLR, uh, Bob and I were talking about that uh, we need to bring some people in that. Uh, uh, you know, can bring audience with them. And and uh, Joe DeMeo uh, left WPLR and he was working at WNHC, but he wasn't doing well. And he was asking me, he said, you know, can, can I come on over? I really want to. And I thought, well, you know, why not? Uh, and he did. And he was selling and it wasn't doing very well. This is a very interesting story. And Bob Dark went over to WNHC and he was known as Bud Stone. And he was doing his top 40 thing. And we had a gentleman uh, on the air uh, who um, was, was a very, very nice guy. And he was doing okay. But the ratings were not really uh, supporting him that much. Oh, oh, man, I'm trying to remember his name. It'll come to me. And um, uh, Bob and I uh, were talking about, you know, it would be interesting to create a character. If you had a character that kind of embodied where you were going, and he came up with the name Stone Man, and I thought, well, hey, well, listen, that is an interesting double or triple entendre, but everybody will know what he what he meant by it. And interestingly, Joe was a, probably a, a living example of Stone Man. <laughs> so um, we had decided to um, uh, have this uh, gentleman leave. Uh, the station, uh, and uh, he was doing uh, he was doing nights, and we hired Bob Dark to come over uh, to WPLR. And one night, I said, you know, uh, we need to cut promos for your new show. Now, this this is how you learn when you make gigantic management mistakes. Uh, so Stone Man, at the time, he wasn't Stone Man that moment. Joe DeMeo was just hanging around the station, and he was playing albums, doing what he wanted to do. And I said, Bob, why don't you come on over tonight, and we'll cut some promos. So he comes over. So we have two studios that are separated by a newsroom, and it's all glass, so you can see across all three as you need to. You had the production studio, the newsroom, and then the on-air studio. So uh, Paul Resnick, that's his name, and uh, he, a wonderful, wonderful guy, but it was just time. So Paul was doing his show, 
I was working with Joe, uh, with, uh, with uh, Bob, uh, cutting promos, and Joe was sitting in with Paul, and they were choosing music to play because at that point we were starting to really get into the esoteric side of it. So about halfway through the show, all of a sudden, I see Paul stand up and he says, I can't stand this. I can't take it anymore. I'm sorry. I'm out of here. And he walked out in the middle of a song. So he walked out of his show in the middle of a song because he could not watch his replacement producing a promo for his show that was replacing his. And he was right. It was my fault. It was my mistake. It's how you learn. And Joe walked in. He said, don't worry, I got it covered. I said, well, yeah, we got to do something. Because Bob Dark said, no, I'm not going in there yet. I'm not ready. And he sat down and he started to track, uh, track albums. Pots traffic, walking in the wind. Before that, we heard Al Stewart. One stage before, we started off with Sugarloaf from a ways back with... Green-Eyed Lady. It's just about three minutes away from 10 o'clock. We'll make it official for uh, Dave. You're listening to WPLR New Haven, 99.1 FM. I'm Stone Man. Time for me to get out of here. So we'll go through the usual motions, and we'll give you the salongs for this. What it is tonight anyway, come to think of it. Tuesday night, we'll be back. And the phones start ringing. And that's how Stone Man began. It was just a pure... It was a moment of, it was a kismet in that we had a negative situation. He stepped in to keep it from being negative and became Stone Man out of the moment. And that's, and that's the, and people could tell stories like that. I watched it happen because it was my fault. I don't say it was, I did it. I made it. It was my fault. (laughs) I've never heard any, you know, tapes of Stone Man. So I'm just sort of hearing in my head that he's kind of a philosophical stoned stoic uh character is is that is that correct or uh <laughs> well he was you know there was more to him than that uh he he'd gotten married uh he uh well, let's just say that uh he entertained himself well uh and uh he knew his music but what he did is he was the guy on the air that was like cool because he could be arrested maybe or he knew where the cops were going to bust people or he'd play stuff that nobody else played and uh he would always end his show and say hey listen remember whatever you're doing make sure that you're having a good time but uh uh let's say i'm trying to remember the phrase but it basically said you know have a have a great time but don't get busted you know something like that and uh so he was on at night and Bob eventually went on in the morning, and we once did a promotion with him where he did his show in the nude, but that's another story. I Why? I, why? Okay, I'll tell you why. He's on the air. Bob, is a, Bob Dark was a great personality. He, he reached out, he grabbed you, and he said, I'm going to give you a good time today, and I want you to have some fun, and he would tell jokes and all this stuff but he'd play, his playlist was anything. So it was good. And we were, again, sort of segueing from popular to rock to real rock. And uh, so he was going along with that. And one morning he comes in, it was right after uh, 
trying to remember who it was. It was uh, in Playgirl, uh, you know, the actor that was in Playgirl. And he said, you know, oh, I don't get it. Why, why? How come he gets to do a centerfold? Tom Selleck or something like that? No, it wasn't Tom <laughs> Selleck but, <laughs> you know, of that era. Yeah. Um, and he says, why? Why is it that they are uh, uh, doing him in Playgirl? I'm the sexiest guy on the radio. Why isn't my audience making them have me be the centerfold? I ought to be the centerfold. I'm sitting in my office listening to this. I said, oh, we got to make this happen. And so I called the magazine and I said, do you take new articles? And they said, well, it depends on what they're about. And I told them, I gave them the story. And I said, here's my idea. And they said, well, write up an article, but here's what matters. Send us photos. Because obviously it's the meat shots that mattered. Excuse me. So I hired a, photo, a photographer come in, to come in. Now, Bob Herpy's office was next to mine, and we're on the second floor of the building, and there are accountants on the first floor. And I tell him what I'm doing, and he says, <laughs> you sure? I said, oh, absolutely. He said, well, let me know, because I can't let. I said, fine. So the photographer's coming in, and we're exp- we're sitting in my office and he's showing me pictures and everything and we're discussing how we're going to do this and Bob goes and he uh, puts paper over the window and the door and all this kind of business and Bob Dark is doing his show and he's getting more and more nervous because he doesn't know what he's going to do and I'm not giving it a thought because I'm talking to the photographer and uh, one of my sponsors is sitting on the sofa in the in the uh, lobby wearing a fur coat all of a sudden, Bob finishes his show, walks out of the studio, comes back into my office, stark naked, and he says, "I can't wait anymore. I gotta get, I gotta get this done." And everybody in the station is like fainting, rolling on the floor, laughing. Bob Herbie shuts his door. He doesn't want to even know anything about this. And um, Jason Cutler, who owned the record shop, Cutler's Records, uh, whose son uh, worked over at Toads. Uh, he uh, was it just beside himself laughing. So we took his fur coat, and I gave Bob my uh, a briefcase, and we have a shot of him walking into the studio wearing nothing but the fur coat, carrying the briefcase to come into work. Then we have shots of him spread-eagling across the microphone, standing on top of the uh, control board and the whole thing. And I wrote up this article, I don't know, it's maybe a thousand words, whatever it is, and I can't even remember. It was about, you know, how people would do anything to get a job on the radio and how he was such a sex symbol and yada, yada, yada. And they published it. So we got, I think there was about five million was a circulation, and Bob said, oh, banks are going to resign us. It's over. (laughs) No, I said, they're going to love it. And they sniped it with it on the cover, and and it did very well. But it all began because Bob made a comment on the air about why he would like to do this and where's his audience. And so it gave the audience motivation to get behind it, but it was something that nobody else would ever do. And so that's why we did stuff. Where do you attribute that energy? Is it just youth? Is it just naivete? Is it just, you know? Well, from my, from my perspective, uh, it, uh, Maybe some naivete, naivete, but that's how good things are invented. 
you know, if you think you, if you're, if you're not allowed to do it or you can't do it and you don't do it, it'll never be done. Uh, now, Playgirl could have said, no, this article is lousy or these photographs don't make it, the idea sucks, but they didn't. So I thought, well, okay, but if I, I had nothing to lose. But my, my thinking was, how am I going to get this station to explode? How am I going to get people to know about it? And uh, this was uh, an opportunity. He created it by something he said on the air. I wanted to connect that to something that happens because he said it on the air, because then listeners would think, well, maybe I better keep listening because who knows what he's going to say next. But it seems like you made, you and your staff made moments for the station to kind of explode time yeah. and time again. We did. And I think one of the secret parts of this was one of the first things we did is uh, uh, typically in radio stations, the sales department and the programming department worked together but didn't work together because the programmers thought, well, I've got to run commercials. People will tune to the competition. So the sales department is necessary, but they're not our friends because they're creating things that we don't really want to. And I convinced the people in programming that if the sales department is successful, they're successful, they make more money because the station makes more money and everybody wins. So it's more a case of understanding what we can do by combining their energies. So we'd have joint sales and programming meetings, which was never done back then. And great ideas would come out of it because the salespeople were out on the street they were talking to people who listened to the station. They would ask them why. Uh, and they would go to see advertisers and, and find out what worked and what didn't and what they wanted. And that's information you need even if you're playing music all the time because it's still another part of the relevance you have to have in your market. And uh, it, I remember in my first job, I had a de an auto dealer who said, ah, nobody, not, nobody's, nobody listens to the radio. I mean, so I, I don't, I said, fine, I'm going to give you 50 free commercials. He said, 50 free commercials? Why are you going to do that? I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell everybody that if they're the 10th person into your dealership uh, every Tuesday, they'll get a free car. And he said, well, you can't do that. I said, why? He said, because, because they're going to keep coming in and I'm going to get stuck. I'm not going to make any money. I'm going to be giving away cars for nothing. I said, how, how could that be? If nobody listens, they're not going to hear it. He said, yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe I should try something. You know, in other words, sometimes you have to really hit them between the eyes with the logic that people are out there. It isn't, it isn't, how often you say the same thing. It's what you tell them once that they remember. And yeah, you can repeat it, but it should be relevant. Mm -hmm. So we would, we, the, the, the programmers and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the air people and the salespeople got to be very good friends. And a salesperson might ask, well, you come with me to go to the Arcadia Ballroom. We're gonna be talking about a show there. Well, you go to Arcadia in 1971 with a air personality, with a salesperson, that's a big deal. You know, it wasn't hard to do, but nobody was doing it. Mm. And it was 
may it was a way to make the two most important factors in what a listener would hear and benefit from work together to make it both relevant and valuable. And even to this day, I think there are a lot of radio, uh, a lot of media that maybe still haven't discovered that. I don't know. <laughs> but it worked, right. for, it worked for us. Yeah. It worked for us. So when does New Haven start to really flower? I think for us, it started probably around 72. We brought in Ronnie Berger, who had been an uh, air personality at, I think it was at WHCN, and he became our program director, and he began to really make a left turn with the music. We got, we got much more into fundamental progressive rock, and we started to play not only popular, but we were playing really new stuff, and the, and the record companies were favoring us because we were willing to do it whereas a lot of other radio stations wouldn't. And so, uh, you know, a lot of stations don't want to take a chance on not playing something that's popular because they think that the listener's going to tune away. And I'm thinking maybe the listener will stay because they might hear something they hadn't heard before that they really like. So by doing that, we forged very, very good, solid relationships, not based on payola, not based on drugs, based on... The fact that we would go deeper into their product base and try to find stuff that's new, give these bands a break, if they were really good and we'd get them on the air. And then they'd become, like Blue Oyster Cult was our baby band. Uh, they, they, uh, they loved us because we were the first out of the box with them and we played their stuff whenever they released it because we liked it, but our listeners wanted it and they listened to it. I think... Around 72, uh, and then I think 72 is when I had, I think that's when I got together with John Lennon and we did this, um, this interview with him, which kind of like made everybody find the radio station on the dial. So that's another With story. PLR? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, I was, uh, I was working with one of the record uh, promo people. I think it was Dave Demers, but I'm not positive. And I told him, I said, you know, last year we were popular music and I did promos with Tony Bennett, Ed Sullivan, Dick Cavett, and Paul Anka. Okay, that was last year. It was relevant then for that moment, but now I got to really move the, I got to move it. He said, well, he said, you know, Paul and uh, Yoko are in New York. Let me see. You've done a lot of favors for us. Let me see what I can do. So he set up uh, an appointment. I went, I, I was, I think it was at 105 Bank Street down in the village and went to see him. I saw him for just, just a minute. And I said, look, I'm going to be giving you a call. Uh, can we do just a quick interview, maybe 10, 15 minutes? And he said, sure. He said, here are the days that work for me. I said, fine, we'll figure it out. And then I gave him a call uh, that day, and uh, we were chatting for a couple of minutes. I had no idea I was on the air at the time. I was just setting up the interview. And uh, then he did the interview, and the phones just exploded. But what it did is it gave me a chance to take a relationship that we built fairly, do it fairly, take an opportunity with a megastar, and drive people to our product. And that's what we did. 
And those were the things, you know, you do the things that people don't expect that they like when they, when they experience it. And then you follow it up with things that they, that they enjoy. Then it doesn't give them a reason to be somewhere else. Mm. But every day is a new day. You have to, you got to keep thinking, keep doing. Well, right. And you keep, you keep inventing. I mean, um, you know, we've talked about it before, but I want to get it down on tape is the, the whole Trodnossel partnership. Yeah. That came out of a relationship I had with the record companies again. And this was now about 74, 75, I guess. And um, I asked them, I said, look, uh, we have a studio here in, uh, in, in Wallingford you've heard of. It used to be known as Syncron. It's now called Trodnossel. I know the guy who owns it, Doc Cavalier. Um, he said if I ever could get a group to come in, they'd let the record. And uh, uh, so uh, one of the record uh, promo guys said, well, listen, uh, who are you thinking about? I said, well, I don't know. What, how about, you know, Steppenwolf or uh, The Birds or, you know, how about Taj Mahal? He said, oh, I can get Taj Mahal. I said, okay, why don't we... Why don't... So I went back to see Doc at John Nossel and I said, okay, you give me a session. If we get Taj Mahal in, we'll record it, and then we'll play the rec- recording on the radio, but we'll invite 100 listeners in. They'll sit on the floor. They'll see a whole recording session from start to finish, how it works, how it comes together. Then they experience the performance. The only thing they won't be involved in is when we do the post-edit, but they won't care by then. And um, he thought it was cool, and he said that would help build his new brand, Trod Nossel. So we had something in it for everybody. Uh, Taj was interested in doing it. It was good for the record company. It was good for the recording studio because they had changed their brand. And obviously it was something we would be doing for audience nobody else was doing. So we brought him in and we had a really great session. And uh, uh, then I took that tape and I started to wheel it around to the other uh, uh, record uh, uh, reps. And I said, look, we can do this. You know, you give me a good one. I'll take a new one. Either way, I'll give you something. You give me something. That's how it should work. And that's and so we did like 20 or 22 of them, something like that. And it was wonderful. And we would we'd replay them on Sundays. And then. um of course, the one that everybody may know about or listen, you know, get, you know, heard was when we did Fleetwood Mac. We also did um, when um, when Orleans came into Westport a few years ago. Uh, it happened to have been just about forty years after we had done their their recording session, so I went during the sound check and uh, uh, saw them, and we had a really nice. You know, uh, a really nice um, remembrance of that time. But back then, they needed, they were new. It was before they sold You're the One to ABC, but they had it out on, you know, and they, and they did it. And um, One time we were, we were uh, sound checking Steppenwolf, and John Kay, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. And we were running late, and he says, well, look, he says, come on, these people are here, and we're not ready to go. He says, why don't you go out and go get them Subway, sub, sub sandwich, get them something. So we went to Subway, which back then, there was only about 100 Subways, period. And they were one of our first 
sponsors uh, when they were like literally five or ten stories deep. Fred DeLuca and uh, Peter Buck. So I brought back subs, and he was eating one while he was sound checking, and he says, oh, this is really great. This is, what, what is this, a Subway? Oh, I love this. And I thought, oh, if I could have been rolling that tape. <laughs> but, you know, it was, uh, those, are, those are moments you, uh, you, you keep. Well, it's really uh, community building in a way, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And we, you know, we did Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. We did NRBQ. We did uh, uh, Chick Corea the year they won five Grammys. Chick Corea, Return to Forever, uh, Larry Coryell, uh, all lots of them. But the full spectrum of of music, and uh, it was wonderful. And uh, I, we, we, we still have them around. And uh, it was uh, just something that we could do that other that other stations weren't doing. And it was something that rewarded the audience for being our audience because they were the ones invited into the studio to enjoy it. Um, for another example of the get up and go uh, attitude, could you could you tell us the Fleetwood Mac story? <laughs> <laughs> well, I could. I just don't want to. I, I don't want to get shot one day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Come on, Mick Fleetwood's a short guy. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not exactly. He's a tall guy, actually. I know. So, well, just you know, uh, uh, we uh, we were doing we 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 got together. I mean, it's a long story if I cover everything, but just to get to the to the um, uh, punchline, uh, we 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 eventually we we did the session. We didn't even start till about eight o'clock. Well, we, before talk about the car. Oh, so. That's so, amazing. Right. I, I get a phone call from Finn Costello, who is the photographer that they hired to shoot their next album cover. And he said, you know, they're coming in to record for you, but I need an old car. I want a nice old convertible because I want to do some period type shots with them. I said, fine, I'll see what I could find. And I figured, well, New Haven, the yellow Rolls Royce is in New Haven. Why not? So I checked that out, and but the yellow Rolls Royce was working. It was on is uh, somewhere else in the country. So I struck out. Now it's the day of the concert, and I haven't been able to find anything really good. I'm driving on the Merritt Parkway toward Trodnossel, and just by sheer luck, I guess, this 1932 Packard convertible pulls up next to me on the Merritt, and I take one look, and I do a triple take, and I said, Oh man, God must be, he's, he's working me. He must be. So I, I kind of motioned and I, and he went off, he, he came over to the side of the road. He thought maybe I was having trouble or something. And I explained what I needed and so forth. And I said, I'll give you a hundred dollars. Come on over. We need you for an hour to take a shot and everything. He says, with who? Fleetwood Mac. Oh, don't give me the hundred dollars. Let's go. And he was on his way to, um, uh, some, you know, a, a rally, an old car rally. So, I had my old car, and they came out, and we took all the shots. I got a nice shot of Stevie Nicks uh, lying on the hood of a drag racer. And uh, then uh, we went in, and they sound checked. And then uh, after they got finished, we went out to dinner at the Yankee Silversmith, and I thought, well, listen, everybody in the Yankee Silversmith is like 50-plus. They're not going to know who we are. I was wrong. 
and uh, we had a we had a very good dinner. A lot of people came over. We came back, and I knew what was going to happen. They had sound checked in an empty studio. We went out, had dinner. Now we come back to a studio. There's 150 people or 100 people on the floor. I know they're not going to want to go until they sound check again. Sure enough, they do that. They stop and they say four, four, four notes into the first song, and they say, no, no, we got to re-sound check. And, and, and I knew that was going to happen, but they didn't want So they made, made us go out and get beer for the, for the audience and the by the time the audience, we by the time we started the actual performance, the audience was half in the bottle, and um, so we did the session, and the session gets completed and everything is fine, and uh, I take the two-inch master, which is sixteen tracks from the from the board, uh, and uh, Rich Robinson, who is the engineer there, was going to do the final mix down uh, uh, with uh, Kevin Garrity, and uh, Mick Fleetwood says, "No, I'm taking them." And I said, no, no, this is our master. He said, no, this is our master. It's our music, and I'm taking it to Florida, and I'll do the mix. I said, we're going on the air on Sunday. You can't possibly do that. He says, well, you'll have to postpone. And I said, well, okay, but when can you have it? Can you have it next week? Yes, I'll have it next week. What am I going to do? He's, you know, I, uh, so I gave him the master. And uh, he goes to Florida, and sure enough, of course, next week I, I get a call from him. Well, I haven't gotten to it. I'm not going to be able to get it ready. So I've been promoting it for a week. Well, I'll put it off another week. So I did. Now, what he didn't know is that with every session we do, we run a slave tape on the board. It's a quarter-inch tape of the entire performance with whatever the board mix is. So we have a backup, but it's just what we call a slave. So uh, I uh, get a call from him the second week, and he says, okay, I think I'll have it done. I said, okay, can I have it tomorrow? He says, yeah, I'll get it to you. So they ship it out, and I get it, and I take a listen to it, and it's like all drums, because he's a drummer. I'm not hearing any high frequencies. It sounds terrible. And so I talked to Bob, Herpy, and I talked to Gordon Weingarth, the program director, and everybody. I said, we can't play this. It sucks. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mick. <laughs> and so we didn't instead, but I said, I'm not going to put it off again and have it remixed. So we ran the show with the slave tape, and nobody ever knew, and it sounded great. And to this day, they probably don't know, nor do they care probably by now, but that's the Fleetwood Mac story. Sometimes you got to do things that that uh, you don't plan on, but you got to come up with an answer. And that that story definitely uh, <laughs> illustrates <laughs> all that. Um, I mean, you must have a, an archive of these these tapes. That I guess it's up to the artist whether or not they'll come out or something like that. Yes. Yes, we we did not release the tapes uh, beyond the broadcast. Now. That's not to say they weren't recorded by a listener because Fleetwood Mac has been in bootleg for 50, right. close to 50 years. But we have some some uh, cuts from Fleetwood Mac live uh, at the studio. They're one of a kind. They're great. And uh, I think some Larry Coriel got out. I know some Chick Corea got out. And, uh, you know, we couldn't do anything about that. It was just the early days of the Internet. And uh, but. 
everybody was happy. They got exposure. They enjoyed the uh, the experience, and the listeners loved it. Mm-hmm. And again, it was something nobody else was doing. Um, firings at radio stations seem to be like uh, just just so matter of fact. Like it, it just it just happens. It's like breathing air or something. <laughs> you know. It's- well, I mean, I can speak from experience. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I don't know that, uh, to me, letting somebody go is never a matter of fact. I've had the misfortune, good fortune of having done it many times. But, um, you know, uh, you, have to, you have to do it for a reason. You just can't wake up one day and decide to do it. it it's, you, could, you could ruin a person's life, on the other hand you could all of a sudden start a person's life when that happens. That's what happened to me. It's also what happened to at least two or three people that I let go that came back and told me that it was the best thing that ever happened because now they have the job they always wanted and happened to be with us. But uh, it's something that can't be taken lightly and you have to have good reason and you have to have given enough of an effort to try to change the situation but sometimes uh the chemistry isn't good and it's not uh in the best interest of the company to maintain the situation if it's not if it's not healthy so you have to do it mm-hmm. but it seems like uh, the radio guys that i've met around here they're a resilient bunch you know you guys get fired it's it's not a big deal no it well because First of all, if you're in radio, uh, generally it's a passion. So if it's a passion, you're going to find a place to go. Will you sometimes go backwards if you're in uh, Chicago and you get fired? Do you wind up taking a job in Des Moines because you can't get a job in Chicago? Maybe. And if so, you find your way back or maybe you find what you want. But I I felt that, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, my 35-minute job was a result of quitting my job at WAVZ to become sales manager of WKCI, not understanding the politics inside of the same company where the two general managers didn't like each other. So when I left, the first general manager wanted to make sure that I couldn't stay and sell against him because I was doing very well when I was selling for him. But when he let me go, when uh, the other general manager let me go, I don't know, I wasn't like heartbroken. I was disappointed. I was upset, yeah. But I knew I could find a job because if you had any level of experience on the air and if you had any understanding of how radio works in the way that it becomes part of a person's life, you'll get a job. Mm. Because radio is an emotional medium. It's not going away. And it's all in understanding how to make radio important to somebody. Uh, We call it appointment listening, where they make an appointment to listen because they don't want to miss what you're going to do. Um, could you talk about the Hamden mural and the road race? I mean, you guys were thoroughly steeped in the community. Yeah. Oh, those are two of my favorites. And, and um, 
the road race um, is wonderful. Uh, that was that was an idea that I I was serving on the New Haven Chamber of Commerce retail board, so I was part of a group that was uh, our job was to watch how retail business was developing in New Haven and do the kinds of things we could do to support retail business. And I was the youngest member of the board. I was probably 32. And I was with the rock station, so clearly I was a doper. And so I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the committee, and I'm having a, you know, we're having a conversation. I said, you know, marathons are very popular, and they're very romantic. I said, we ought to do something. We, there's such beautiful areas around New Haven. And they kind of looked at me and said, Sure, right, okay. So I went home. I was now I was angry. So I went home and I wrote up this whole proposal for a New Haven marathon. And I came back to the next meeting and I presented it. And they looked at it and they said, you know, this isn't bad. But um, uh, the director of uh, traffic and parking, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but a wonderful man, he said, you know, this is really great, but it can't be a marathon. We just aren't big enough. He said, maybe we should do like a half marathon. And I thought, well, okay, that's a great idea. Let's, let's do it. And I was all this time thinking WPLR will be the presenter. And so uh, we talked about it some more, and uh, then we drove around town and kind of measured. And we thought, well, the best, uh, the best distance was really 20 kilometers, which is just slightly under a half marathon. But there were fewer races like that. And then it could become a more important race. And so that's what we did. We, we started it. I sold the first sponsorship to American National Bank in Hamden and WPLR. And I went and I reached out and uh, connected with... Um, uh, with uh, Bill Rogers, who had just won the New York Marathon, I think, for the third time or something. And I said, uh, we're doing this race. Would you be willing to come in? I'd be willing to pay your expenses. I don't care how much they are. Uh, and he said, okay, fine. I'll let you know what my expenses will be. And I thought, well, okay, as long as he knows we use the word expenses here. So he came in, and he ran in our first race. And we had our sponsor. I remember uh, doing all of the uh, entries in my living room. We had about 3,500 people. Chose Labor Day because nobody was working. It was a chance for everybody to get together. And it's been a, it's been a hit ever since. It's a legacy I'm so very proud of for myself, for the station. And it is now, the it has been for years, the National 20-Kilometer Championship. It was at one point, I think, think a qualifier for the New York Marathon mm -hmm. and we've had all kinds of Olympians run in it and they ran it again this year and now there are three divisions I think there's the 20k then there's the family 5k and then there's uh I think um another distance but I was the starter for the first three or four years and when it turns 50 I plan to come back and be the starter for the 50th <laughs> <laughs> and then the other the other thing you mentioned was the mural and um, we were in Hamden at the, uh, uh, we, no, we were still in New Haven. But I was out in Hamden and I was uh, I looked at the Hamden Plaza and I saw this movie theater. It was a big building with three really large walls with nothing on them. And I went to one of the record company guys and I said, if I 
could come up with an idea for a mural. Could you get me funding? And uh, he said, I could introduce you to some people. So I went down to New York and I just kind of explained the idea. And the way the mural was was painted, it was painted by Dan Dodonta, Dan Dodonta and Tony Falcone, who were terrific, super graphic mural painters. And we designed a uh, we designed uh, a um, uh, an aquarium uh, filled with fish and sharks and you know, all kinds of things. But we did it in a three dimensional way, so that no matter where you walked around the building, you saw what was inside the mural from the perspective of where you were standing as opposed to it just being a painting on a wall. So it became really interesting. And then we had hundreds of pebbles on the bottom and we painted the faces of different rockers. So what we would do is have our listeners go out and try to identify certain pebbles and win prizes. And it was the second largest mural, uh, outdoor mural in the world. Wow. Uh, yeah, so we had it... Uh, I think that was up for about eight or nine years, and then they sold the the plaza, and they decided to change the building and all. But it was those were two things that I I liked because it wasn't just radio; it was radio integrating itself into the community and becoming a part of something even bigger. Mm-hmm. And that to me was more important. That's right. Um, as you've told me before, I know I know you have hundreds of stories of you know. Uh, heading to the Coliseum with Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, and different limos. <laughs> but is there any major chunk that we're, we're kind of missing or you haven't ever talked about? Or There are some things that have happened that I can't. <laughs> but, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I remember going to the Coliseum, um, going into the office and watching, um, trying to remember he's a lead singer of a major group, settling his own box office. And I remember the day when, you know, when the, when the black groups would come in and they would play and you'd have to pay them in advance. They wouldn't go on stage if they weren't paid in cash in advance. And you'd ask yourself, well, why? And then if you knew the business, you'd know why, because they were always getting screwed. Um, I had one group that required, I think it was three cases of Cavassier and at least six women under the age of 21 to be in the dressing room after the performance. Okay, at least it was 21, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but most of the most of the groups we we worked with were, I mean, they were they were nice. I mean, you know, Hall and Oates was great. Uh, yeah, the Almond Brothers were interesting. Uh, but, um, the Coliseum was a great, uh, it was a great venue. I remember going even back to the New Haven arena and it's a, it's a, it's a shame that it never survived in the long term, but it saw some fantastic shows and our relationship with Jimmy Coplick was just one in a million. Uh, there was nothing that could compare to the relationship that, um, Jimmy and I, uh, developed when he came to New Haven and we became the perfect um, promotional sponsoring partner that he could ask for. We did everything he needed, and he gave us everything we needed, and that is how we got involved with Toads. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother lifetime. Whole nother book. 
<laughs> oh, you know, Mike Sperndle and, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, that I, uh, I got to know Mike very well. We were very good friends and it was just a very sad to watch what happened to him over the years. But what he, um, his vision after he realized that the French restaurant wasn't going to make it, uh, his vision was what drove it. Now, of course, he had the right people. And the timing was right because he gave exposure to a lot of local groups at the same time. So it was really an extension of the thought process that we had at the same time. But it was a wonderful relationship. It was. Even for my $3.01 ticket to see the Rolling Stones that nobody knew were coming in or whatever, you know. (laughs) Um. It seems so far away, and I know you, you, we, you and I don't have the answer, but maybe you have something. I mean, how how do you restore regionality back to radio? How do you do it back to local media? How do you? That's a you know? that is a real <laughs> no. It's a very good question because, um, the twenty year old we have today has an entirely different mindset than the twenty year old of nineteen seventy. Is a different. It was a different time. It was a different, uh, you know. Uh, um, it was. It was just a, a different society. We had different pressures, but also because of digitization, you know, because of the ability to do everything virtually. I mean, I'm I'm designing right now an internship program for my podcast that we produce. And the, and the intern is going to be in Vermont, and the entire internship is going to be virtual. And we're, he, they're still going to learn as much. Uh, but, you know, young adults today, just they have a, a different, their values are different, their needs are different, and the way that they allocate their time. And it's a challenge for radio. It's a challenge for TV as well. Um, Streaming has become so mainstream. It's been good for, it's been good for musicians. It's been bad for musicians. Uh, it's it's it. Uh, I, I think, and I've had this conversation with a few broadcasters that you have to take a step back, and you have to think about um, how you can break through a person's uh, um, their their. Um, Consciousness, not consciousness, but, you know, they have about a 10-second stream of consciousness uh, uh, before they move on to something else. Uh, and, and that's because there's so many distractions, so many diversions, so many things to do. And that said, young people still like to listen to music, and they want to hear new artists, and they want to... And they still need to know about what's going on in their community and and that there are interesting things to do. Uh, the way to break through is um, probably to find some way to really effectively deliver the hybrid between um, an on-air sound and a digital uh, delivery. Uh, my daughter is uh, 29 and she is works in social media. But when she gets in the car, she doesn't hesitate to listen to the radio. 
even though most everything else she listens to is in her laptop or on her phone or whatever. It's a challenge. Right now it's a challenge. And uh, I think what broadcasters have to do is to continue to find and, and deliver information that's important, that, that people find um, valuable because the smart, smart cars will get you to a radio station or they'll get you to a stream or they'll get you to any other product that can deliver information almost by having you think about it without you even having to touch it. And they just have to keep, they have to keep pace with it. Mm. It's easy for me to say. It's not so easy to do. Um, how long were you at PLR for? I was at PLR for 10 years. I started in April of 71, and I left uh, the day uh, uh, after John Lennon was murdered, ironically. And uh, so that was in December of 1980. And I went into business with my business partner, who is still my business partner after uh, 40, 40 years or so, 41 years. 80, yeah, uh, and um, uh, but every we most of our work when when I left PLR was geared toward the radio business. We then delivered content to radio stations, and we sold the content to advertisers in a um, subtle way. It was like product placement more so than just okay, let's stop and give them three minutes of commercials because nobody's going to stick through that. So we came up with new ways to combine uh, an advertiser's message and content that was worthy of being on the radio that a listener could listen to and not feel like they were used. And that's important. Mm -hmm. And even today, um, good personalities like a Jim Kerr in New York or, you know, uh, they... They find a way to tell you something you really needed to know and you care about and you're coming back for more because he's your friend. And there are still a lot of air personalities that are that way. It's, uh, but the challenge is there. It's still going to be a $12 billion business. And you're, you're still in that sort of business now or? Well, uh, I'm involved in producing a podcast. It's called Distraction Podcast, and it's geared more toward people with ADD, ADHD, which is becoming... Uh, mo mo most people today don't have that, but they are suffering from the same distraction issue that there are too many things happening at the same time that you can't... Your attention span, which is what I was referring to before, is... Th that of a goldfish, maybe five or 10 seconds. And then there's something else to distract you away. So we have a, a podcast we've been doing for six years that uh, uh, discusses how to deal with attention deficit. And uh, it's, uh, it's done very well. And uh, we're possibly launching, launching a new podcast with a, uh, a personality uh, sometime around the first of the year. But that's that's pretty much what uh, I'm doing right now. It's sort of keeping keeping connected, but that's I don't worry about it. I'm semi-retired or retired. I forget which, whatever. They and the me. studios in your home? No, ah, the studio. We we actually produce it virtually through a studio online, and the personality, the host, is working out of their home, and 
our executive producer, who handles all of it, is working out of her home. And the studio is the third point. And we get the recording, and then we do uh, our post-production, clean it up, and then package it with our music and intro and close and everything. So we're really creating a product using today's methods that is still similar to a product that would have been produced, say, 20 years ago in terms of what the output is. But we're using, we're using today's uh, approach. Advice for somebody who's young, who wants to get something going, whether it's, you know, a career in radio or a musician or an artist or. Well, uh, I would say uh, that uh, you got to find out what it is you're really passionate about. I know people say that all the time. They throw that out. But the fact is that if you don't wake up in the morning wanting to do this, uh, but instead you wake up in the morning going to do what you're being paid to do, okay, you can make a living, but you're not going to get as much out of life as, you're, as you deserve. So sometimes you have to really take a step back and really think about what matters to you and what you want to be and who you want to be. Um, there are lots of ways to get an education. There are lots of ways to get into opportunities but it takes it takes work it takes connections it takes going out and finding out um, where the opportunities are there's so many ways to do it online whether it's on LinkedIn or you know all of these other uh, um, sources but it starts I think first with you really wanting you understanding who you want to be and if you know what you want to do and who you want to be, you'll find a way to get there even if you work for nothing in order to get the knowledge and experience to then get to the point that you want to get to. Now, you can't necessarily afford to work for nothing. But, um, and again, all of this is easy for me to say. I'm, not, I'm done with my work life for the most part, but there's still more stuff I want to do. So I want to follow a passion. It's no different if I'm 20 or whether I'm 80. So, um, and getting advice from people in the business or in the area that you want, getting into conversations, seeking them out, just getting to understand why you're passionate for it or what it is you have to do to get there. And connecting yourself with people, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to be uh, uh, outgoing, willing to ask questions, but here is the secret word. You have to listen. If you listen more than you talk, which I certainly have not done tonight, if you listen more than you talk, you will learn exactly how to do what you need to do to get where you want to go. If you're selling somebody, they'll tell you how to sell them. And if you're looking to find a way to do something, if you ask the right questions and then stop and let people tell you, you'll learn. That's all I can offer. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? All I would say is that I am very thankful for every minute I've had. I wouldn't give back anything. I've been very lucky. I love Westport. 
I think it's a wonderful area. I feel blessed with my family and with the work I've done and the things that I've been able to accomplish. And all I can do and want to do more than anything is give back. So I, I'm involved with different, you know, different organizations to do that. And uh, I just am very, I feel very fortunate and I want to help people. Thanks so much. That's all I got. Yeah, that was great. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Of course.